The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading this morning from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I'm Brian Salter, one of the pastors here, and I add my welcome to Chad's. As you can tell throughout the service, our emphasis is on prayer this morning. We heard the word read, you heard the choir sing. Uh, we are looking at what Jesus has to say about prayer. With that in mind, I just give you a, an invitation to join us for prayer this evening at 6 p.m. Uh, we'll be praying for missionaries, specifically through the missionary prayer request. So you're welcome to come and and continue this emphasis on prayer today, tonight at 6 p.m. in the chapel. Let me pray that God will indeed speak to us in his word. Let's pray. Lord, for some of us, these words are familiar, very familiar. And we're asking you to make them fresh. I ask that all of us would learn how to pray that today would contribute to that in some way. We thank you that the very nature of prayer is grace, that we have access to the Holy Father through the work of the Son. And even as some of us are eager to grow in prayer, some may be here that have never prayed because they've never known your Son. May this look at prayer, this look at intimacy with a holy God draw those who don't yet believe and increase the faith of those of us who do. Give us the gift of faith this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
In his book entitled Prayer, Tim Keller recounts how one Norwegian minister likens prayer to mining as he knew it in the early 20th century in Norway. Demolition to create mine shafts took two basic kind of actions, boring and igniting. There are long periods of time, the minister writes, when the deep holes are bored with great effort into the hard rock, boring the holes deeply enough to strategically remove the main body of rock was work that took a lot of patience and a lot of steadiness and much persistence. It was the hard work. Once the holes were finished, the shot was inserted and connected to a fuse, and the Norwegian minister commented, to light the fuse and fire the shot is easy. You see results. Shots resound, pieces fly in every direction. But with the more painstaking work of boring the holes requires a patient strength of character. He goes on to say, anyone can light a fuse. That helpful illustration really warns against mere fuse lighting prayers, the kind that look for immediate results and don't, doesn't persist. If we believe in the power of prayer and in the wisdom of God, you and I will have a patient prayer life that's much like boring the holes, the persistence, the steady effort, embracing what must happen for the fuse to light. In this passage, Jesus teaches us about whole boring prayer. And he gives us great hope of lighting the fuse. First, see Jesus' practice in prayer. Do not overlook verse 1 in the very beginning. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus was praying. Just let that sit with you a little bit. Second person of the Trinity in prayer. Jesus lived a life of dependence and delight in the Father. Jesus intentionally and eagerly often retreats to prayer. Consider Jesus and his life of dependence, even with a few references from the Gospel of John. In John 5, 19, he said, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. John 5, verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing, Jesus says. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. This opening phrase of verse one, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, simply should do this to all of us. No servant is above his master. A life of prayer is essential for a disciple of Jesus Christ because it was essential in the very life of Jesus Christ. This practice of dependence and delight for Jesus is something that should be ours. If it is missing, 
we must evaluate our following, period. Maybe it was missing for the disciples because when he finished, one of the disciples said, Lord, could you teach us to pray? They, they saw him praying. They made the connection, maybe no servants above his master. And they just said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And so the disciples ask, and Jesus gives a pattern of prayer that you heard in verses two through four. Now, briefly, before we look at that prayer, you will notice differences between Luke and Matthew's account of that prayer. Matthew, the much more common one that we recite, why the difference? It's very likely that Jesus taught this same pattern in multiple different contexts. And Luke and Matthew are summarizing in true but different ways. For example, if you go to the 11 o'clock sermon, you're going to hear somewhat the same sermon, but it's going to have some variation. And thus the summary might be a little different, but it's, they're both true. And that's what's happening here with Luke. Jesus' pattern of prayer here can be summarized with six P's. I find it very helpful to remember as you consider the pattern of prayer with these six P's. And the first is privilege. Privilege. The invocation. Father. In the Old Testament, that word father is used to talk about God, but is never used to address God. It's used as a simile, it's used as a metaphor of the ways he is like a father. But then when Jesus comes because of his work that gives us access to the father, our elder brother, we come adopted into the family, it is used over 100 times in John alone to speak of how we now address God. Father. Simply put, as Dale Ralph Davis says, prayer is the expression of privileged relationship. I love that. Whenever we pray just at the beginning, Father, we are in a place of enormous privilege of grace. Coming as children, as, as we heard earlier in last chapter in Luke, no one who knows the Father no one knows who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son wants to reveal him. Privilege begins every prayer. Father. William Barclay nicely captures the sense of this intimate relationship. He tells an old Roman story of a Roman emperor returning to Rome in triumph, marching his troops through the streets along with a number of prisoners and captives. The streets were lined with cheering people, but there were guards stationed to keep people in their place. The emperor's youngest son, a wee lad, as they call him, snuck off the family platform, wriggled through the crowd, darted between the legs of a guard to greet his father's chariot. The soldier stopped him and scooped him up and said, you can't do that, boy. Don't you know who that is in the chariot? That's the emperor. You can't run out to his chariot. And the wee lad laughed and said, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. God rules over the entire world. He is king of all. But he's our father. 
And every prayer begins with privilege. The marvel and the privilege of addressing God as Father because of Jesus should never, ever be lost on us. After privilege, there's preeminence. Hallowed be your name. To hallow. It means that God is to receive the honor that is rightly due him. Simply put, this is a petition that is asking, is saying this. God shall be God. And humans must not reduce God to manageable size and scope according to our own making. God must be God. He is rightly the only one deserving glory and honor. Hallow his name. And with this emphasis of preeminence in the prayer, we go from privilege to preeminence. We understand that God's interests always come what? First. Do you know what that is? This is the great antidote for self-absorption. When you pray, you immediately can begin to kill and slay the self by saying, Father, hallowed be your name. It's not about me. Privilege and preeminence. And then purpose. Your kingdom come. When I hear that petition, I often go back to Eugene Peterson speaking of prayer, one of my all-time favorite definitions. He says, prayer is a a subversive activity that involves a more or less open act of defiance against the current regime. It is a subversive activity that involves a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. And the current regime means every other imposter ruler, which primarily is what? Self and all sorts of others. When we pray, it is a subversive act of war. It is open defiance against all other imposter rulers. The essence of this purposeful petition is this. May the realities of heaven come to be the reality on earth. Kenneth Bailey is so helpful here with these two questions. Because in Matthew, we understand your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven. Kenneth Bailey asks this. What's true of heaven? The will of God flows like a great river that has no barriers to halt its progress. What's true on earth? On earth, sin interrupts the flow of God's desire for good for all people. And so with this petition, we cry out for the will of God to flow like mighty waters so that wherever there is drought from sin, where there's lack, where there's longing, where there's loss, that the rivers of the will of God would flow like they do in heaven on the earth. That's what this means. Yes, the kingdom of God has already come in the person and work of Jesus Christ but it has not yet fully come. We are waiting on him to come again. And in the meantime, we stand between these two appearings, the first appearing of the king, the second appearing of the king, and we are to bring the continuation of the kingdom so that there are signs of the kingdom everywhere we look. 
that every Christian in their domain, their little world, their home, their work, their labor, their relationships would bring the dominion of God to that domain that the waters of the will of God that flow freely in heaven would begin to flow on earth. And the implication of this purpose in prayer is this. Christian, your sole purpose is not to get to heaven. It's to bring heaven to earth. That purpose will change the entire way of your thinking and living. Because one day, we will inherit the earth. But Christian, your goal is not merely to get to heaven, but to bring heaven to earth in every domain and sphere where God places us. So you begin to see in prayer, privilege, preeminence, purpose. Then you begin to move from the vows to the we's, the things we pray for ourselves, and you see provision, needs. We pray for provision because we are dependent. Please note, give us each day our daily bread. We are to ask for bread, not cake. These are necessities not luxuries. An agrarian society would have understood that. The crops of the day or the day's pay supplied the day's bread. Food was reduced to its most basic level. Whatever we really need to live, we ask for bread, not cake. But Paul Miller says this, however, I suspect that our refrigerator and checkbook for most of us have tomorrow's bread and the next month's bread out there already. probably true for most of us we got today's bread and tomorrow's bread and next month's bread so how do people with that sort of resourcefulness learn to pray this prayer of provision how could we possibly feel dependent when we have all we need and more Well, first, I would ask one question. Who do you really believe is your provider? Your prayer life will let you know. Jesus does not envision kingdom citizens possessing perpetual God forgetfulness. That's never in his vision. And yet, when you have more than you need, God forgetfulness is very much in grasp. Give us this day our daily bread is a call to endless dependency. And we must face our allergy of dependency. People with resources for today, tomorrow, and the future are allergic to dependency, which is the very counter thing to this prayer. So what are we supposed to do? I would say this, generously give. I think we should give until we're dependent. That would help. Further, 
I think we should see that it says, give us each day our daily bread, not my daily bread. Remember when you pray, Father, you look in the pew and your brothers and sisters, when you look around the world, that's family. So maybe if we generously started to give until we were dependent, our brothers and sisters all over the world would also have their daily bread. And those who have not had the bread of life would meet him as well. Don't forget it's our daily bread, not just me and mine. So we've got to learn to embrace utter dependency. And and C.S. Lewis said it. You ought to give so that there are things you can't do that you want to do. That'll, That'll make you dependent. That'll make you start thinking about daily bread. Bread, not cake. Then you have pardon. Privilege, preeminence, purpose, provision, and then pardon, forgiveness. We pray for forgiveness because we're guilty. Do you believe that forgiveness is as much a recurring need as daily bread? That's what Jesus is saying. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do you believe that forgiveness is the fuel of the Christian life? Do you understand that to be forgiven means that someone must pay? Someone must absorb the cost of what is rightfully owed. And in his costly death, Jesus satisfied our debt with the Father. The Father could not just forget. The Father could not just overlook our sin. That would have been unjust. The debt had to be paid and will be paid, either by us or by Christ for us. When you really get that forgiveness, it'll change the entire way you live. Does forgiveness fuel us? I would ask us to answer that question. Look at our prayer lives. Does dependence mark us? Look at our prayer lives. Does forgiveness fuel us? Look at our prayer lives. The person who is fueled by forgiveness will be often in the presence of God Repenting, confessing their sins, and enjoying the forgiveness of Jesus. And it is out of that that there is an overflow of a forgiving life. You see, when Jesus speaks of our forgiving others, I want you to see he's not saying that's how you earn God's forgiveness. He's saying that's evidence that you have been. Bitterness, rage, unforgiveness. They must not mark God's people. The pattern of prayer shows the need for pardon. And then you have protection. And lead us not into temptation. We pray for protection because we're fragile. We pray for bread because we're dependent. We pray for forgiveness because we're guilty. We pray for protection because we're fragile. This petition, though, hear me, does not and should not presuppose that God tempts us or that we should hope to avoid temptation. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, in teaching us to pray this prayer, Jesus is saying, you need dependence, you need leadership, you need my guidance to navigate all the temptations you will face. The petition is for deliverance according to his leadership, not my own. As Chad prayed at the beginning, we celebrated Veterans Day on Friday. Out of World War I World War and those pilots came the phrase, flying by the seat of your pants. 
That phrase means you go by feel, you make decisions in the moment. It arose out of World War I where pilots' early navigation systems failed or in the early years of aviation, they didn't have as many navigational aids and so they had to gauge on their own senses the plane's position and performance. The seat was the largest point of contact between the pilot and the plane. And it was from the seat of his pants that the pilot could feel the airplane and react to the controls and feel the engine operating. They flew by the vibrations of the plane. I tell you that to say, don't fly by the seat of your pants in fighting sin. God has given us navigational guidance. His word and his spirit in prayer. There's no need to fly by the seat of your pants in fighting sin. You will crash and burn. Lead us, lead us, lead us not into temptation. It's it's a prayer for guidance and deliverance. Are we ruthlessly attentive to his guidance in word and prayer? Are we dangerously flying by the seat of our pants in our Christian life? And so you've seen Jesus practice in prayer. You've seen his pattern for prayer privilege, preeminence, purpose, provision, pardon, protection. Pray like that. But then he has this paradigm of prayer. By saying paradigm here, I'm saying that Jesus offers not just what to say in a pattern, but a new way of thinking. He moves beyond pattern setting to paradigm shifts. And in verses five through 10, he asks us to shift to shameless tenacity in our prayer. He says it by the story in verse five, and he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him and he'll answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. He's probably, I don't, there's probably a little hostility in this quote here. My children are with me in bed throughout all the centuries, the maxim applies, never wake a sleeping child. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Please notice the point. The friendship does not get him out of bed. It's the impudence. And what does that mean? That is basically outrageous, offensive behavior. It's bold. In the positive sense here, it is, you could understand it as audacity or shameless tenacity. Go away. It wasn't the friendship. It was that. Pray like that. Jesus shifts the paradigm on us. He's inviting us to pray with a proper audacity and tenacity. He is asking you, bring your request to the Father without shame, without hesitation, without tentativeness, without reluctance. Come and come and come and come again. Bore the holes. Holy boldness is what he's asking for. A sharp knocking and insistent asking and unrelenting request. Give him no rest, the scriptures say. 
Does that shift your paradigm of prayer? And your prayers, are you so focused on being either polite or being guarded from getting your hopes up and being disappointed? Or are you desperately convinced, I need to talk to the Father, I have needs, I have things in my limited perspective that I'm gonna ask and I'm gonna ask and I'm gonna ask again, not because I'm rude, but because he invited me to. He told me to do that. That'll shift your paradigm. The second shift of the paradigm is believing he's a good father. Verses 11 through 13, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? There's a pretty funny article in the Wall Street Journal in February of this year. It's called Raspberries for Cauliflower, the Bizarre World of Online Grocery Store Substitutions. It was hilarious. People were left puzzled and annoyed. I asked for roses and they gave me bell peppers. I asked for a thermometer, they delivered mac and cheese. I asked for a rapid COVID test, they delivered Hall's lozenges. One customer said he he needed horseradish to make sauce for shrimp. The product wasn't available, they delivered beets. You just can't make cocktail sauce with ketchup and beets. We live in this world of bizarre substitutions and that's sort of what Jesus is talking about. Do you really believe I'm the kind of God that you ask for a fish and I give you a serpent? I'm not a God of bizarre grocery store substitutions. I'm a good father. He says in verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, Again, he presupposes universal sin. You're bad. And you understand this. I'm good. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, I am convinced in our tradition that we do not as much wrestle with the sovereignty of God for honest We wrestle with the goodness of God. Is he really a good father? Or might he just be a cruel trickster? I ask him one thing and he gives me another. I'd like to tell you this on the basis of the goodness of God. If you ever receive a substitution that's counter to your request in prayer, it's for your good and would have been exactly what you would have asked for if you had all the information. So rest, he's a good father. We've seen Jesus practice in prayer. We've heard his pattern for prayer. We've heard the paradigm for prayer. So will we pray? It's at the heart of renewal. I close with this quote from Samuel Chadwick. Satan dreads nothing but prayer. Activities are multiplied that prayer may be ousted. And organizations are increased that prayer may have no chance. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless study. 
He fears nothing from prayerless labor. He fears nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Let's pray. Father, would you answer for us the request of the disciples? Teach us to pray. Teach us, not only as individuals, but teach us as a church to pray. Help us to embrace the pattern, the privilege, the purpose, the preeminence, the provision, the protection, the pardon in all of our prayers and shift our paradigms so that we become tenacious in prayer, we become absolutely convinced that you're a good father. We ask you this in your name. Amen.